Broadcasting from Ireland, featuring interviews with some of the biggest names in magic, welcome to the Deceit Reality Podcast, with your hosts, David Peace and Steve Spade. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Deceit Reality Podcast. We hope you all had a great Christmas, New Year, and everything like that, as much as you can in these times. And we're back here today, kicking it off with a bang, with Mark Paul. Mark, how are you doing? I'm very well, guys. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a uh... It's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, yeah, thanks for the invitation. No problem. And uh, we always start off the podcast asking people, at least in 2020, uh, how they got into magic. But I think an interesting question for from like a mentalist to a mentalist is how, at what point did you decide to go fully into the mentalism realm from a lot of people start in magic and then really get gravitated towards that? So how did that really start for you? Yeah, well, I, I, you know, same route as a lot of people. You know, when I was a kid, I was given a magic set. Um, I had the Hocus Pocus Junior Number Two, it was called. And uh, I, the very first trick I learned was um, it was like a sort of a, a stunt. It was like balancing a playing card and then you put a glass on top of it. And, uh, you know, and it was just like a sort of T-shaped card. Um, and that started me off. And I was about, I think, about eight when I, I got given that magic set and the reality was he got thrown up in the cupboard you know I couldn't do half the tricks I didn't understand it and I was really disappointed because of course it's not real magic you know you're expecting <laughs> it to happen and actually you've got to learn some sort of trick so it sat up in the cupboard for a few months and then I was off ill from school and uh, my mum had gone to work and I was bored so I was rummaging through the toy cupboard and I got out the magic set and in the magic set was a coin slide. You know, the old coin slide to make a coin disappear. And the amazing thing yeah. was I put a coin in it and I must have accidentally turned it round because when I put it in the slide, the coin disappeared. And I experienced this moment of real magic. It was like, wow, that's just disappeared. You know, it just happened. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, a few seconds later, I hear it rattling around in the slide. And then it's like, how do I get it out? Of course, I haven't read the instructions. I'm a man, you know, of course <laughs> yeah. not. Um, so that's sort of what kicked it off. And through my teenage years, I put together a sort of cabaret magic act. And it was very, you know, straightforward material. It was things like Chinese sticks, six card repeat, um, sucker dying silks, invisible deck. It was it was all those sort of classic routines that I sort of started learning and, and buying from magic dealers. And that is what I did until my sort of 18th, 19th year when I moved to London and I started working for Marvin's Magic. And I was introduced to this whole area of, in London of close-up magic. So the close-up magic then kicked off because I was doing that in the evenings. And there was a, a show that um, Richard McDougall put on called Ever So Slightly which was a fantastic show. You know, people like Chris Power and JJ performing and, and Richard McDougall himself. And, and I used to do a sort of spot in that. And I remember from those cabaret days, from, you know, being a sort of kid magician, the one thing that people talked about in my show was a telephone directory test. It was, um, it was in um, Lewis Ganson. It was a Lewis Ganson in the Lewis Ganson book, and it was a John Booth routine. And I, I don't know why I'd included this sort of as a teenager, 
But it was the thing that people talked about afterwards. It was the thing that, um, you know, that's what people remembered. So when I started doing ever so slightly, when I'm about 19, 20 years old, I thought I'll put that in and I'll put other sort of mental stuff around it. And that's what I did. And that's what kicked it off for me, because it was suddenly like, oh, my gosh, this this gets so much impact because, you know, people afterwards were chatting about it. And some people thought it was real and, and this amazing talent I have and, 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 and so on. So I realized the power of mentalism when I was about 19 years old. Um, and I started sort of doing a mentalism act probably in the early 90s. So. You know, it, it, I was sort of there doing it before Darren, before, you know, Andy Nyman and I used to have chats about mentalism. This was way before Darren. This was when he was a demonstrator at Marvin's Magic. And we were basically the only two people doing mentalism in London, other than Graham Jolly. But Graham Jolly was a sort of different generation. He was this sort of older generation. So it was really just the two of us sort of messing around with it. And, and we were both doing mentalism sort of in the sort of early 90s, 94, 95, round about there. Um, and that's sort of when it started and that's when it kicked off. And there was one really sort of primal reason why I shifted to mentalism and that was because i'm not funny you know everyone was being doing sort of daniel's lines or wayne dobson's line they were doing the sort of stand-up cheeky chappy magician at that time and that just didn't suit me and i wanted magic that was powerful and impactful and made people you know really stand up and pay attention and the mentalism did that for me so that's why i sort of again went down that route i've learned over the years that you do need to have that comedy you do need to have the amusement and stuff in it but essentially that's what sort of kicked it all off perfect we had a comment in there from paul saying hello and he's awaiting your lecture with interest so the uh i think that's about mind inventions coming up pretty yeah, soon mind invention coming up yeah it's uh the 16th 17th and 18th of uh, of this month um I, the lineup's phenomenal i mean yeah I, so honored to be asked to be part of it i mean it's uh yeah it's great <laughs> Daddy, you don't Daddy, have to <laughs> he'd been asking me for years to do it and i'd never been around i'd always been away i'd been you know working or on my cruise or something like that and um so of course you know we're all here at home that's why danny's got some great people together that's what we were able to get yeah, to mark <laughs> 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 that's true too. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Once the uh, once the pandemic's over, we'll have no guests on the podcast anymore. It should just be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> but you'll be so busy, you won't be doing the podcast anymore. That's the yeah. Thing. Hopefully, <laughs> you you you, hope, you, yeah. you, you, you did some work from Marvin's Magic. We actually had Marvin on just before uh, the Christmas yeah, break, I saw and he that. yeah yeah yeah. And you mentioned that. Uh, what was that like working as a for Marvin's magic at that time was really just kicking off. Well, I'll tell you what, guys. I mean, if, you know, if there are any young, you know, aspiring magicians, uh, performers watching, uh, you know, doing some sort of demonstrating, whether, you know, whether it's in a magic shop, you know, or, or whether it's for somebody like Marvin, it is fantastic experience because 
what you're getting to do. Okay, you might be learning some basic tricks like Svengali or dynamic coins or cups and balls, something like that. And you're going to do, you're going to learn a basic routine. But that routine is a pitch routine. It's a routine that's designed to sell the trick. And you're going to do that hundreds of times a day. I mean, when I used to sell Svengali decks, I literally did the Svengali them probably 120, 130 times a day. And you wouldn't sell a deck of cards every time you did it, but you would sell, you know, probably in the region of 100 decks of cards, you know, in, in over the course of the day. Now, when you're trying to sell something and you're on commission, you know, so, so mm. obviously the more you sell, the more you're going to earn, it naturally makes you perform in a certain way. You know, you're, you're selling the effect. You're, and, and, and you soon realize that when you come out of that, if, you, if you're going to start performing in the evenings and you're doing your own show, it's the same situation, except you're not selling the physical trick. You're selling the effect of the trick and you're selling yourself, your, your personality. So I would say it's great experience. Uh, I mean, mm. I work for Marvin between 1988 and 1995, I think it was. And although I was also doing some close-up stuff in the evenings, that was my bread and butter. It was during the day working and demonstrating and selling tricks. Um, yeah, fantastic experience. Yeah, definitely. And definitely, like, you hone it. And I, I think it's good practice as well. It, it's something that... I think a lot of people find out when they start doing close-up gigs and you're doing your fave, same five-minute set at every table. By the time you get to the eighth table, you're dead and you don't really care anymore. That, so yeah. how do you do it? Well, this, this, this was how it was in the trade show floor for me as well because as a demonstrator and used to pitching a trick all day long, I could go out on the trade show, show uh, the, the trade show floor, and do the same thing. You know, pitch mm -hmm. and you know a, a, a ten minute routine or a message based routine or even a presentation, and I could just do it back to back. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the sort of trade show performers, they they don't do that. They they do a presentation maybe once every half an hour. So they're doing like a ten minute presentation twice an hour. And you know what? For me. That's when your energy goes down. You know, if, you, if you've got these big gaps of time in between performing, you know, that's when I start to sag. <laughs> Whereas if I'm working all day long, then I, I, I just keep going, you know. And of course, that is a fantastic benefit for, um, for the client because the client yes. sees that you're working and you're going to drive more people through the stand that way. Um, so you know it's a no-brainer for me um, so having that stamina and building up to it i think is uh you know is, is a great thing and it's worth you know it, it's worth building that stamina because you never know when you're going to quite be performing you might be a close-up magician and asked to do you know some sort of big garden party event that lasts all day so you want to be able to get out there and, and be able to do that yeah. and develop your voice as well so your voice is able to handle that amount of talking and and the other key thing that demonstrating tricks does is it teaches you people skills it teaches you to engage people um you know simple things like yeah i'll be walking down the street and i'll see some sort of tele sales marketing person and they always start with a question they're like you know oh do you mind if i stop you um you know and it's like it, it's all apologetic 
And mm. you can't do that. You can't do that. You, you, and it's the same when you're working tables. You can't walk up to a, a table and go, would you like to see a magic trick? Because it's too easy for the, the group to say no. And it was mm. the same in selling magic tricks. You never start with a question. It was always, let me show you something amazing. I mean, it's a direct, it's a direct statement which requires the person to pay attention. And, and, and those sort of things I still apply nowadays if I'm entertaining at a table or if I'm on the trade show floor. You know, it's, it's, it's that. You know, let me show you something amazing. I'm going to show you the world's fastest card trick. It, it's, it's that. You know, you want a hook that, that hooks people in. So, yeah, Marvin's Magic, great, great background. And, and it's learning all those skills and then applying it to your sort of further magical career afterwards. I think something I noticed, uh, I watched a video of you during Norton's antivirus uh, trade show. Yes. And you were doing a lot of like some carrot stuff and like a cut and restore rope, which when you think Maripol mentalist, that's not really what you see. But uh, I think that that definitely uh, adds to it. And do you do a lot of just traditional stuff when you're performing close up still? Or do you go into the uh, try and stick with mentalism? Well, the um, when I'm on a trade show floor, I I will use what I feel is the best routines for the trade show floor. Um, and a lot of the times visual stuff works better. Mm -hmm. and, and for that, that for that particular Norton antivirus, I think it was when they launched Norton 360. So for yeah. me, the idea of a piece of rope that you can tie together in a loop to create the 360, you know, and and it, it just naturally fitted because I, if I remember correctly, it was something like, you know, the, the whole point of, you know, you you can have your you think your data is all tied up, um, but there yeah. are very clever hackers out there that can cut into your data stream. And that's when you cut the rope. Um, it was also know, half price at times, which is yeah, <laughs> those sort of those sort of lines exactly. Um, but then the whole point of Norton 360 was this gives you this sort of perimeter security that you can't break through. So it just lent itself to it. And I've always been one for choosing the right material for the right environment. Um, mm -hmm. And I also feel, you know. <laughs> I've, I've worked on cruise ships for a big part of my career. And you're standing on a stage in front of an audience of a thousand people and you're doing a live show. And I'm not famous. And yet yeah. I'm getting an audience of a thousand people there. And there's a buzz. There's an atmosphere. And they come to see you. And you can take them on a journey through a mentalism show, which will blow their minds. They will be talking about it on the ship for days afterwards. Now, because I've experienced that, when I go on to, say, a close-up environment where I'm entertaining round tables and there's an MC that keeps interrupting and there's music in the background and the courses are being served, I just don't get the same reaction with mentalism that I can mm -hmm. get on stage. So for me, mentalism isn't as effective in a close-up environment. Now, I'm not saying you can't do mentalism in a close-up environment. Of course you can, you know, I mean, and I've, and I've done it. You know, you can do sense yeah. tales, you can do a nail writer routine, you can do whatever, you know, it's all that stuff is, is fine. 
but it just doesn't impact as well as it does when you have more time and an audience paying more attention to it. Yeah. For me, when I'm in a close-up environment, visual magic works better. It gets better reactions. It works better. You know, and some of the, the times, I mean, I, I do, for example, like a, a nudist deck routine in, in close-up. And, you know, that that gets fantastic reactions. And I can do the whole routine completely silently. You know, if it really is loud in the venue, all I've got to do is is sort of point to my eye, point to the card and start doing the routine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people watch visual magic happening. So so for me, sometimes mentalism in, isn't the right choice for that sort of environment, yeah. I think. I, so, I think that's similar because like on stage, I do when I do a stage show, it's 100 percent mentalism. But yeah. then close up, I'll do ambitious card routine vanish a ring but then I'm, i'll also do like a peak or drawing duplication or even just force the carrot on someone just to have because it's kind of whatever i i enjoy but i always i do think the visual stuff is important especially in loud environments and then more when you're in maybe a casual area hanging out afterwards in like the pipe and flipper moment or just in more of a casual setting mentalism can work well because it is about attention because you can't have someone for five minutes to sit there silently as you <laughs> read someone's mind in the middle of a three-course meal it doesn't really work uh, in um i think it's an absolute magic darren talks about when he used to work as a close-up magician in, in bristol and it's interesting because darren would do his magic stuff and then if he'd had a particularly good table he would go back to that table and it would be like, I've got something really special for you, but this really needs you to be quiet and to pay attention because, you know, it, it's really hard to do. And he would do a piece of mentalism which required more focus and required more attention of his audience. And that's exactly what he's asked from them. Yeah. And I thought that was actually a very clever approach. So he's not going out there and doing a book test on every table. He's he's doing the the magic, which he's getting great reactions with. But then he's the mentalism is something special that's being added on. I mean, look, I, I know there's a lot of guys that do mentalism out there. And all I would say is if you're doing mentalism, you you if you're doing it in that environment, a table hopping environment, it's got to be quick and impactful and you know something really simple like um a nail writer routine you know you walk up to the table and it's like you know i'm, I'm the mind reader um, i'm going to do something amazing for you watch this um i'm going to write something down okay i've written down a number uh, i'm going to bombard you with numbers uh 23 32 75 47 82 name a first two digit number that comes into your head 17 you turn it around it's 17 you know i mean it's 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 got to yeah. be boom, 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 boom. It's got to be sort of quite fast um, and and pacey. Yeah. You know, the trouble with mentalism is there is a lot of procedure sometimes. E even in a billet routine, you know, you've got to hand out pieces of paper, pencils, get something written down, collect them back in. You know, all of that happens before the effect starts happening. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, there's nothing wrong with it. I just think it's um, I, I, it, 
I think one of the skills I've had in my performance career is is recognizing what material is right for what environment. You know, I I would turn up to do a corporate show, and just because of the layout of the room, I'd be like, you know, I'm not going to do that routine. I'm I'm not going to do that one. I'm going to put this one in instead, and just choosing the material that I felt comfortable with in that environment. So that that's definitely something to consider. You know, don't just because you've learned the new book test doesn't mean it's a great thing to do in the next environment you're working in. Yeah, definitely. We had a message in from one of our uh, previous guests, uh, Nicholas Kind, uh, wrote in going, hi there, a question. How do you deal with uh, so-called hecklers or challenges uh, from your audience after the show? And he also says, yes, the the beard suits you. So (laughs) he enjoys uh, Mark. Hecklers during the show or hecklers after, did he say? It seems to be after, because I think especially on cruise ships when you're you're going to be mingling with people after the show, I guess, just in your life. Because I think, you see, it's interesting because with a mentalism show, I don't have hecklers. So during the show, you don't have Mm -hmm. people calling out because, you know, I, I am playing it semi-serious you know i'm not you know it isn't a sort of uh, a laugh a minute show it's it's sold as an amazing show so if you're engaging your audience and you're taking them on that journey and they're amazed by what you're doing then you really don't get hecklers sort of during the mm-hmm. show especially if you're playing that sort of authority figure if you're if you you know if you seem like you are somebody who's in charge of what they're doing which i think you have to be when you're a mentalist um but yes uh that's very interesting because um uh, nicholas is is hit on the the perfect thing there and and this does happen after the show the next day for example i might be wandering around the ship and i'm no longer that you know authority figure on the stage i'm just a guy wandering around the ship about to go and you know have my breakfast or something So people do stop you and will chat about your your show. And on occasion, you will have the, you know, the, oh, read my mind type of uh, challenge, you know, that you get. And I, I have some sort of stock lines that I can use depending on the situation, you know. Um, like, for yeah. example, a lot of the time I might meet someone in the lift and they might go, oh, read my mind. And I'll say, you're thinking about going up or something like that. You know, <laughs> so it's it's just a glib comment. Or it'll probably be something like, you're thinking about going to the buffet, aren't you? You know, because that's where they're going. You know, that's where yeah. I'm going. So it's where everyone's going. So, I, you know, I will have that light line. If somebody pushes it a bit further, then I'll go down the route of saying, um, you know, I... I for, for me, there's a there's the perfect answer. The perfect answer is it, most of my routine on the cruise ship is a blindfold Q&A act. So and part mm. of the setup of that is I say I have to, you know, uh, get rid of the scent of uh, my sense of sight so that I can tune in to you know, your thoughts, you know, more accurately. So. I've got the perfect excuse to say, you know, well, you know, I'm not blindfolded. It takes me, a, it takes me a, a, quite a long time to get into that sort of frame of mind. So, you know, so I can't tell you exactly what you're thinking of now, but I might be able to do, and then I'll do something really quick, you know, just something, you know, a, a, 
star sign divination or something mm. like that, something that's off the cuff. But I, I, I don't really want to perform. I, I, I want to work on stage. I don't want to perform. I mean, Darren had a, a great way of dealing with it as well, which um, he used to he, he used to put out. Uh, <laughs> I used to see him do it at um, parties at Andy Nyman's. <laughs> he would he'd be walking around with a glass of, of wine which he'd never drunk. He, he'd never drunk it. You know, he's there talking to people. And he's got this glass of wine. And if somebody asked him to read a mind, he'd say, oh, I'm really sorry I've been drinking and I'm, I'm really not good at it when I've been drinking. You know, so it was that sort of excuse. And do you know what? You shouldn't perform every time somebody asks you to. It, you know, you if you've done, if I've yeah. done a performance on the stage the night before there is nothing that i'm going to be able to do in the buffet line that is going to be as impressive as what i did the night before so and a lot of the time on the ship you might be doing a second show so you can actually turn it into that you say i tell you what if you come along to the second show sit number somewhere near the front and i'll get you involved i'll get you up on stage and we'll do something amazing and that tends to placate people as as well you know and half the yeah. time they don't sit in the front row because they're then just worried about going on stage. So <laughs> that, that deals with it too. <laughs> so I hope that answers the question, Nicholas. Yeah, he, he wrote in there, thank you for your answer. So I think that definitely answers. So I think that is a case that sometimes we're giddy and we just want to perform and it can actually hurt our own reputation when it's like, you oh can. yeah, I do have a new gimmick in my pocket. <laughs> yeah. It is it is the old adage of, you know, um, less is more really. You know, I, I think that's, you know, the, leave your audience wanting more, you know, don't, you know, don't ruin what you've created the night before or or that evening, you know, because I see sometimes a lot of stage performers that they've done a cabaret at a corporate event and then they sort of go and network afterwards. But and that's OK, of course, the networking part's OK, but then they might do something afterwards. And, and the reality is you've just done this amazing stuff on stage and what you're doing here, you know, it, it, it's maybe not quite as impressive. It's still great. But it's not yeah. quite as impressive what you did there, and, and you can you can undermine your own reputation definitely. Especially if you've built your show to a crescendo, like predicting everything that's happened, predicting the lasso, yeah. and now you're like, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you then do, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, which hand the coin is in type routine. You know, yeah. which is a great routine, but it's not as impactful as the predicting of the lottery and the prediction of the whole show. So, yeah, don't yeah. don't do that, you know. And and, you know, that's another it is another skill that really I have learned over the years through through experimentation and through making mistakes. And that is, you know, don't perform all the time. You know, you perform yeah. when you want to perform. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I think something uh, Luke Jamais talked about that as well, about if you get asked, say, maybe later, and then just yeah. keep saying, and he'll only perform if someone asks him three or four times. And then he's like, yeah. okay, they really want to, so now yeah. now yeah. Yeah. yeah, we had another question come in there, actually. Loads flying in. Uh, hello, Mark. Uh, what is, was your biggest inspiration uh, for your work in mentalism? So is any inspiration? I would probably honestly say um two people um i would say mm. david burglass first of all david yes. um I, I first met david well 
I had seen him on television. He'd had a Channel 4 series here in the UK uh, called The Mind of David Burgos. And I'd watched that when I was a 13, 14 year old. And I was also watching Paul Daniels on BBC One at the same time. I was, you know, it was around about that time. And whereas Paul Daniels was doing stuff where I sort of saw the plots, I'd seen the plots, you know, mm -hmm. Daniels might perform aerial fishing. And I'd read about aerial fishing, you know, in a Tarbell volume. So, yeah. I, you know, I sort of knew the plots and they, I recognised them from the Daniels show. With David Burglass, I don't recognise any of it. I'm like, this is amazing. This is mind-blowing. You know, how is all this prediction engraved on the bottom of a, of a light sculpture? And, and hmm. all of this stuff just seemed incredible to me. So I was a fan when I was about 13, 14 years old. So then, of course, to start working for Marvin and the very first day I went up to London, um, I actually went up to do my Magic Circle exam and I went into Hamley's to meet with Marvin and David was in there as well. So I met David Burglass. It was like my, you know, big, <laughs> a big thing for me. Um, and over the years, I saw David perform a lot. And I saw him work a lot with his his card magic in just a social situation and doing things like the Burglass effect, you know, in, in those environments. Um, and that that sort of triggered off, I would say, the the, uh, the the beginnings, the beginnings of understanding what impossibility is really about you know, about a, a lot of the tricks that we do in mentalism, you know, they're not necessarily impossible. You know, they, they might be, for example, unlikely coincidences. Um, and, 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 and all of that is, is fine as a plot. But I think when I was younger, I, when you want to call yourself a magician, you, you want to do impossibilities. You want to do things that are amazing. Yeah. Um, for me, it wasn't about getting the laughs. It was about getting the gasps of astonishment. And watching David, that's what it felt like to me. So going down the mentalism route was, was definitely the, the, the right thing. And then um, a little later on, I met John Fisher at the Magic Circle. I think it was in the Magic Circle. And, and you've got to remember, this is the days way before YouTube and all of that stuff. And um, John Fisher had some tapes of Chan Canasta. And I sort of heard about Chan Kanasa, but never seen him work. And this is way before yeah. David Britland's books about Chan Kanasta. And I watched the first performance of Chan Kanasta, and it was mind blowing. It was just incredible. I mean, and of course, you can, you know, just type in Chan Kanasta and go to YouTube, and you'll see those same clips. There's essentially only two that are still around. There's a black and white one from the early '60s where he does all this stuff, which is amazing, including the book test. And then there's a, um, a Parkinson show a little later on where he fails with the book test and you see his out, which was just brilliant to watch. So for me, I would say the two main influences, David Berglaff, Chan Canasta, yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, two pretty good ones, I have to say. <laughs> I think yeah, they did inspire a lot of people. Uh, one thing, uh, working on like cruise ships and stuff like that, and especially traveling around the world, as a mentalist, even when performing locally, you will run into people who don't speak English the best, and it might be their second language. Do you have any sort of advice for people 
who, when you are doing a mind reading or some sort of mentalism effect, which uses language a lot when the person doesn't speak English as their first language? Well, I predominantly I work on um, a, a British and American cruise ships. So mm -hmm. almost always it's a very large contingent of English speakers. But on occasion, you'll have quite a few Asian guests. You know, you might have some Japanese guests or some Chinese guests or whatever. And mm -hmm. they will come to the show and the cruise director might tell you, you know, oh, we've got, you know, 20 um, Japanese in tonight or something like that. And I always, with doing the Q&A, um, I always try and make sure that a card goes out to one of those people as well, because yeah. when it comes back in, you might be able to work with it. And I'll tell you what, if you can work with it, you will bring the house down with it. I remember I used to do a book test. And after I did the book test, um, this uh, little, you know, Asian woman stood up and waved her. She's holding this book and she doesn't say anything. She's just waving the book around like this. And you can't sort of ignore her. <laughs> so I went up to her and I took the book and it was it's all Japanese characters. You know, that, that's what it is. It's just, a, it's, it's a book in Chinese or Japanese, or I didn't even know what it was. I have no idea, but it's just characters. It's vertical and so on. And do you know what? What I did is I, um, I got her up and, you know, and with just broken English, I, I sort of, and I did, what I did was my AAA book test. And yeah. so I'm flicking through and obviously I'm going to peek what she's going to look at now i have no idea what it says but for me i can just just imagine it i can picture it and i draw it the best i can it's a drawing duplication that's essentially yeah. what it is so i'm drawing the lines and i'm i'm trying to create it as much as possible and i keep it hidden from her and and then i i say you know to tell everyone what it is and she you know, this word comes out that is totally unpronounceable. And I turn it around and I show her and she freaked out. She freaked out. I, and I, I still don't know what it said or, or, or anything. It was just a drawing <laughs> duplication. So if you, you, you've got to be careful because you don't want to involve somebody that's non-English in the show and then for it to fail. Um, I'll give you yeah. another example. And this is actually probably... It's something you could apply to any show. Mm -hmm. um, I do a routine where I'm going to just tell someone the word they're thinking of. And it's not a book test. So all it is going to be is they're going to write it down. I'm going to see that word at some point. But because of the nature of the reveal, I, I asked them to write a short word, maybe four or five letters long. This is something that's early in the show. So it, it justifies the fact we're still warming up. We're, we're, we're building up with the mind reading. Now, sometimes I will get, say, a German person on stage who can speak English, but I ask them to write a word in mm. German that is four or five letters long. And for me, it's the same thing. I'm going to see it. So although I might not know what the word is, I can duplicate the word. And you have that similar effect. You have them vocalizing what the word is and you revealing it. And that is so much more impactful than having an English person do it. 
just yeah. by changing. And it's the, the method is the same. It's no more difficult because it's going to be a four or five letter word. But the impact is much, much stronger, much stronger. You know, it's a perfect example of, you know, mentalism. Just it, it, it's all about presentation. It's all about the plot. It's all about the reveal of the information. Um, so that's something that you could pretty much apply if you have got some foreign speaking person in your audience, you know, as long as you're geared up to it and maybe you restrict them. So, you know, you don't want them to write a word that's, you know, 11 letters long, because if you don't yeah. know what it is and, and if you're doing a peak, which essentially this is what it was, you don't want it too long because obviously it's like, oh, what does that say? You know, and you can't <laughs> you can't memorize it. But four or five letters, no problem. Yeah, definitely. I think that's great advice. I think it's the one thing as well I found is uh, even being able to speak from one to ten in French or German or Spanish. And then because in my area, there's a lot of call centers for European support for Apple and Amazon, and things like that. Yeah. So yeah. you can get your corporate gig is multilingual. So just being able to force a card on someone, you know, it's a four that so you say four in their language as if you're reading that's, it. From and, in that. and just All having right. a through a few phrases even if you can just greet people if you can say hello or, or welcome or or something like that in you know in the other person's language it just it absolutely eases things and smooths things you know but but remember if predominantly most of your audience is english speaking you want to use this sparingly you know you, yeah. this is a one-off type effect that you 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 want to sort of impact with your your, your audience as it were if you are working for a whole audience of foreign speaking people, you shouldn't be there, to be honest. You know, if you don't speak that language, you know, you're going to have a hard time, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I'd say I'll struggle to be there. <laughs> Pulling out your book test, being like, ah, does anybody read this language? Just definitely. Think. And the continuing game for those watching of the disappearing Steve Spade has continued. Thanks to the wonders of the internet, but it's it's his new vanishing act. He's been working on it all quarantine. It's, it's going quite well. But we've another question actually from Nicholas that I think that there. Uh, your thoughts on the mysterious being mysterious to your audience member? Do you agree that your stage performer and everyday persona should be the same? I guess no, it, it depends. I, on I, I, I would say my my, my stage performer persona is a natural extension of who I am in real life but it is a it's a more authoritative um, more uh, forceful type of character on stage I would say you know mm -hmm. I'm, I'm in control on stage and I'm a bit more maybe demanding on stage in terms of you know do this do that you know type yeah. of thing um, so uh, it's it's the old advice you've got to look in the mirror and you have got to be honest with what you see there. You, you've got to be honest with who you are. And you've got to develop an on-stage persona that is in line with that. You know, yeah. if you are, if you're 18 and you've got acne, you know, you can't be Channing Pollock on stage. That is, you know, you can't be the elegant Dove performing. Use Channing Pollock as an example. Maybe I should be talking about like you, you're not, you know, you're not um, somebody more modern like Lance Burton. You're not. You're not. You know, you're not yeah. that character. What you are is a young Mark Zuckerberg uh, nerdy character. So if you're doing lightning calculations in your head and you're you're you know doing stuff like that, that fits with who you are. So 
So sometimes by understanding clearly who you are, your character and how an audience will perceive you actually defines your material. It actually makes choosing material a lot easier. And and can I just say, I was thinking today about, uh, you know, what we're doing here tonight. And, I, and I, I thought about things that I sort of wanted to say. And one of the things that came up is mm. if there are young performers watching, can I give you a big piece of advice? If, if you're young and, and you don't have to be young in age. I mean, you could be a young performer. You may be just starting performing. Um, don't be a mentalist because there are thousands of mentalists. When I started in the 90s, it was me and Andy Nyman. It, there was no one else other than Graham Jolly as the pro. We, we were out on a limb and we were doing it for different reasons than copying the, the, the bandwagon that's out there at the moment. So don't be a mentalist because everybody's a mentalist. My, my wife saw Ben Hart do the linking finger rings the other night. Um, he did a, a, a TV a TV show for Scottish TV. She'd never seen that routine before. She was blown away by that routine. She thinks it's the best thing she's ever seen a magician do. Now, this is a classic effect that we all know about, and we don't do it because we're bloody mentalists. You know, so, so you know, I, there is so many great things out there. And the reality is, you if, if, if you want to be successful, and I, and I don't mean famous, I mean successful in what you do, you know, get a regular source of bookings. You want to have something that's a little bit different. And, mm. you know, being a good visual magician at the moment is actually a little bit different. If you want to really sort of try and build up a bit of uh, maybe fame behind you, if you become, say, a pickpocket, there's, there's no real, there's only a couple of people doing pickpockets in, in this country. So you could build up that, that. That's how you would get on TV because you, you're the first pickpocket on TV. There, there's no pickpockets around. You know, um, maybe, you, you know, if you, if you still like the mentalism, concentrate on the hypnotism because there's, there's sort of fewer people doing the hypnosis side of things um so, so sort of think about things like that if you're a young performer and i don't mean young in age if you're just a new performer don't necessarily follow in line with everything else that's going on you know think about that character and who you are and don't try to be somebody else just try and, and ben hart i think is a fantastic example of this you know, he's a young good-looking kid and he's doing great visual magic and he's doing visual magic that's here so we're seeing him and we're seeing what he's doing and he's creating miracles yeah absolutely so steve did the right thing by being an escape artist and not really liking mentalism yes. so yeah exactly <laughs> yeah sorry steve of course yeah being an escapologist that's exactly <laughs> what i'm talking about you're absolutely right to go down that route because there's only one escapologist out there at the moment, and that's Jonathan Goodwin. You know, and, and, and that's the only one who's got any sort of profile. So, so anything. Yeah, and at the moment, there's this sort of popular theme for um, a group of magicians to do a show, like the Illusionists, and they want a mind reader, and they want a magician, and an illusionist, and and as an escapologist. You know, now there might be 
200 mentalists auditioning for the mentalist role. But if you're the only escapologist, you're going to get the role. You know, so <laughs> yeah. it's that as well. I, I like to dabble into kind of everything too. You know, I, mean? I, I do magic and I do mind reading and I've done hypnosis and I've done blindfold drives and all that kind of things too. So I, I like to be kind of a, a kind of a jack of all trades within the magic world a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and it's good to experiment with different things because again, you find what suits you and what you're good at. Definitely. Um, and yeah. what your audience likes as well. You know, don't forget to listen to your audience because that's very important too you know if the audience doesn't like what you're presenting doesn't matter how much you like it it's not going to work and it also works the other way around i mean you know i i've, I've said this before you know, i am not a fan of the magic square at all you know I'm, i i it's you know but but i happened to be on a ship and my luggage got lost and i did a magic square routine and this was years ago and the impact was like oh my god this is amazing and, and so, although I personally don't like Magic Square, I do a Magic Square because my audience loves the Magic Square. So, you know, so that's the other sort of flip side of the coin as well. Don't, you know, don't, uh, if there's a trick you don't necessarily like, but your audience likes it, then that should be part of your show. It can work the other way too, Mark. You know, you could be working on an effect yeah. that you really like. The audience doesn't yeah. feel for it at all, you know. And, and, and you know, and then it's scrapped. It has to go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as Dave likes to say, then it just becomes ambitious character or something. <laughs> yeah. Very true. It's one of the things that you go, no, it's not the trick. I just didn't perform it right. I'll get it right next time, and then two years later, eventually, it's like, okay, well, it's just magic. Yeah, and, and there, there is that element as well because sometimes you you have to get a feel for for the presentation of something. You know, you that is very true as well. So don't throw it out after one performance, but just. <laughs> Bear that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> read, read into it, I think, is uh, yeah. the good thing. So we have a segment on, on the show, and we'll go through a few more because loads of questions come in as well, so I'll jump back to them. But I think I'm, I'm going to ask you to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly, which is basically a segment on the show where we ask our guests to tell a story of a show or a performance that off good, might have went bad or even ugly, usually to hilarious consequences. <laughs> okay, I, I, uh, I, yes, I, I have one that is burnt into my memory. Um, <laughs> all right. So um, let me set the scene. We're on a cruise ship. Now, a lot of cruise ship audiences are very elderly, you know, because they're the people with the time and the money to go on long cruises. But, you know, so, so sometimes you might be walking out in front of an audience, which is... You know, maybe the youngest person there is in their 70s, you know, or, or in their late 60s. So, so you know, and, and it's upwards from that. So it's an older audience that I'm working for. And, you know, the show's been going well and I'm about to finish the show and I, I, I'm closing with a, a billet routine. So the, the billets have gone out and and you know somebody's thinking of a childhood friend. Somebody's thinking of, a you know, childhood pet. It, it's that type of routine. Now, it's a one ahead. I'm going to get, by, by tearing up one of the billets and getting rid of it, I'm doing a center tear and I'm going to see the information. So I know that the billet I've got is from the person who is um, thinking of their, uh, uh, you know, their pet, their childhood pet. And, you know, and I've been open with that. I've been sort of like, yeah, think of a childhood pet. Could be a cat, dog, could be something unusual. But, you know, think of the child, but think of the name of the pet. So I'm tearing the billet up 
and I get my glimpse and my heart literally stops because what I'm glimpsing there is the N word. Okay, N-I-G-G-E-R is staring me in the face. <laughs> and I'm like, now, I can't say this word on stage. This is impossible to say this on stage, you know, because you're just going to offend people. Now, I'm realising also it's innocent because this guy's really old and he obviously had a little you know, dog or whatever it was at the time. And that's what he named it. But where'd you go with this? You know, I've, I've already done the other part of the routine. So this is the close of the show. So, um, so I'm standing there. So I'm like, I, you know, I, this is a black dog. Am I right? Yeah. Yes, it is a black dog. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, good. We're doing all right. So where'd you go? Uh, and so I write down, you know, I, I do N and I, and I do that star, star, star you know whatever are at the end so you know i'm not writing the word and then i realize in order for this to play out in any shape or form he's got to say the word so <laughs> i'm so on stage and i'm like this is the close of the show I, I can't turn it around and show him that's not gonna work he's like you know right in the middle of the audience so so I have to get him to say it. And he stands up and clearly shouts the word to the room. He's got no moral compass at all. This is fine in his mind. And the whole audience literally goes, ah! there's this big sharp intake of breath. And, and, and I literally turn around this board to <laughs> and walk off. <laughs> now, wow. The thing is this, two weeks later, I'm on a different cruise ship. And I kid you not, the same word comes up again. I mean, it's unbelievable, but it comes up in a different place in the routine. And do you know what? I just don't reveal it. I, I just fail. I just fail on it. I can't get in tune. I just fail. I've learned my lesson. And luckily enough, I have the second part of the routine. So I, I ended with a, you know, a climax fine. But what that taught me was, is if I go onto a ship where it's old people, I do not do that routine. I do not do a childhood pet's name. I don't go anywhere near that because it is just too possible it might happen you know i i had an elderly aunt who, who who unfortunately passed away this year but she's just a different generation and she would use words in different ways than we can use them and it was just normal and natural for that generation and regardless of whether it's right or wrong i don't think there was anything malice behind their their, their use of that word but that's how it was. So I've learned my lesson and that routine gets scrapped if I look at the audience and go, oh, my God, that's old people. We're not doing that tonight. <laughs> no. Wes, Wes Marker, we had Wes Marker on uh, from Canada, the magician, and, and he said the same thing when he's on cruise ships. He tries to stay away from some, some routines for that reason. Yeah, it's just, you, you know, you learn your lesson. You absolutely... 
learn your lesson. And that, that is probably the worst experience I have had on stage. I mean, because it was so bad from so many different perspectives. The word's bad, having him say it's bad, and it's the end of the show and it goes nowhere. I mean, it was just horrendous. I mean, you know, luckily there were no real, there were no complaints about it. It was like, it wasn't, you know, it became mm. a bit of a joke the next day that this guy had called his dog that, you know, so it was. If, if it keeps, if it keeps happening, Mark, you should be, and go back to your seat, check underneath your seat. There's an envelope, open up the envelope, yes. but don't open it up here. Open it up when you go home. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. I now, I now carry a piece of paper in my breast pocket. This is <laughs> <laughs> and just hope you don't ever get knocked down and someone goes, oh, does he have any ID? Oh, there's a piece of paper. Oh, wow. Put that back in the jacket. <laughs> Never look at that again. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so that's probably you know, the worst. I, I will tell you that there was a, this didn't happen to me, but just for the close-up environment. Um, I used to have a company called Dynamic Effects Limited. So I, it, it used to be me and um, uh, Paul Andrews, Anthony O and, and Nick Cree. So we're a group of four magicians and we're, you know, we've, we've marketed ourselves to do Christmas parties. And, uh, you know, it was quite a good model, actually, because what we did is we sold ourselves to corporate event companies. Um, so we only had to find like, you know, maybe five or six corporate event companies. And from those five or six companies, we got maybe five or six gigs from each company. So, you know, that was spread over the course of the year. And it's great because they wanted multiple performers. They were big banquets. And instead of phoning up five or six magicians, one phone call to us and they would, you know, they would have the four of us and we would find a couple of other people that would come with us, you know. So one phone yeah. call to us sold it for them. Um, and I remember one Christmas, I am with Paul Andrews. <laughs> <laughs> and he is so he's working at the table and it was at the Dorchester and it was particularly grumpy um, waiting staff. I think this is probably like the 20th, 30th event they've done that week. You know, they're just fed up of it and they're fed up of close up magicians being in the way and, and all of this stuff. So it's it's just ripe for it to sort of go wrong. Anyway, <laughs> um. Paul is working at the table next to me and he's working, he's working. And suddenly I hear this massive, like, oh, you know, this yelp from him. And what's happened? There's a woman stood behind him. She's got a serving fork and she's just jabbed it right in his backside. He's literally got this fork stuck in the cheek of his ass. Oh my God. <laughs> and, and that, Chris, we, we were on that, that, Christmas gig with um, Sheba Cassini, who is a, a caricature artist, and her Christmas card for that year was that incident <laughs> encapsulated on the front. It was a you know table with this magician leaping over the top of the table with a serving fork stuck in his backside. <laughs> so so anything oh, yeah. happen, this job is dangerous, guys. Dangerous. I once got a paper cost, so like. <laughs> Tough code, Mark. Tough code. <laughs> Funny. So we're just coming up on the hour there. So I'm just going to, we can go rapid fire maybe to a couple of the questions that have come in. Uh, there's one here, which is, uh, what is your favorite magic slash mentalism show you've ever seen live? Good question. Oh, uh, Darren, without doubt. I think Darren's Enigma mm. show, probably, because I watched yeah. it with Daisy Berglass and we're watching 
espicology being performed by Darren, you know. So, yeah, it, it, it was amazing. Um, and a close second to that, I think, is probably Darren's um, Darren doing uh, the Oracle, you know, doing blindfold Q&A uh, routine, you know, which was amazing as well. So, yeah, definitely. Mm. But also, you know, I mean, seeing Chan Canasta, yeah, I, you know, I have to say, Chan Canasta doing the book test is amazing. So anyway, yeah, sorry, <laughs> still <laughs> wittering on, aren't I? We're going to do a rapid fire. Go on. Uh, did uh, Michael Parkinson ever ask you to perform for him again or keep in contact? It's great having to be able to perform well, for him in the past. Yeah. Yeah, there's a long story attached to that as well. But briefly, um, the, the short answer is no. Um, but it was, it was really unfortunate because what happened in that situation was after the Parkinson show, the BBC was very interested in me to do a show on the BBC. And they asked me to write a pilot, which I did. They really liked it. And they asked me to write eight shows, which I did. And they really liked. Um, and at that point, Darren broke through. So it was like, oh, well, it's been done on another. And in the world of television, it seems that you can have you know, half a dozen TV chefs on TV at the same time. You can have dozens of comedians on TV at the same time. Yeah. But you can't have magicians like that. For some reason, I, you know, whoever has invented the rules, um, you know, there seems to be one popular magician on TV and that's it. So, you know, when Darren broke through with the success of the Channel 4 series, BBC weren't interested in a magic show anymore, you know, or a mind reading show show which is what it was going to be so um so it never happened so you've got a Darren brown voodoo doll somewhere that you just keep pinning <laughs> no, no, no. i'll be honest he does it much better i mean that whole tv thing you know he absolutely nailed it and it's it's great and and some of the tv work i've done i i haven't really enjoyed it you know i i enjoy the live performance and tv is a you know, it's a difficult beast to tame. It really is. Um, yeah. And other performers before me have found the same thing. You know, and either you, you know, either you sell your soul to it, and you, you, it's TV is what you do, or you know, you you use it to up your profile a bit, and and then you carry on doing what you're doing. You know. Yeah, I think a lot of people see it as the way to just sell tickets for the stage show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that is what it should be for. I mean, you know, I, I used to go along to the recordings of Paul Daniels and, and I got to sort of chat to him afterwards and, 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 and got to sort of, you know, hang out with him. And that's what he told me. He said the the model for the Paul Daniels magic shows is in, was entirely to sell theatre tickets, to have enough profile and celebrity that when he toured with a theatre show, he was selling out. And and if you think about it, it makes monetary sense as well. I mean, look at Darren. Darren will fill a thousand seat theatre at, at 50 quid a time. So, you know, it's there's, there's 50,000 pounds of revenue coming in. And, you know, Darren's company is getting the bulk of that. It's normally an 80-20 split with a theatre and he's getting 80% of it. You know, not Darren personally necessarily, but yeah. the company is getting 80 percent so it's it's a, and that's just one night you know that's you know you're not going to get 50 grand for doing a, a tv one a tv series let alone you know so so it was always the model it's it and it still is nowadays you know hence the the whole youtube um you know vlogging type 
thing where you're trying to up profile to lead to something else, really. Yeah. Do you think, Mark, um, as as like a like a publicity stunt type thing for a mentalist? I mean, as an escape artist, I can do a stunt, but I mean, when when a mentalist, it's nearly always like a newspaper prediction or a, a find an object kind of thing. Do you think things like that are still kind of relevant in a kind of a more virtual world? Um, yes, I, I think they are. Um, it's it's hard, isn't it? Um, if you look at one of the big examples, you know, Burglass having the box over, um, it was over Regent Street. So it was the, it was the mm-hmm. cross where, where, where Regent Street crosses Oxford, um, Oxford Street. So in Oxford Circus, there was this box hanging in the air and it was up there for a week with a big sign pointing at it saying, you know, uh, what's in the box, you know, tune into David Burglass, you know, on such and such TV. And he created a sensation with that because so many people saw it. And it's the Mm -hmm. same thing with YouTube or with social media. It's about getting people to see it. So Mm -hmm. we're deluged with stuff on social media. I am not a fan of social media. I have not used it anywhere near to full advantage you know i'm i'm a bit of a dinosaur when it comes to that and i recognize that but you know there's also a part of me i can't you know there's part of me that can't stand some of the stuff that social media is all about you know so so it's hard yes i i think a good publicity stunt can work on social media but are you going to get more than couple hundred people watching it you know it's 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 how you make it go viral how do you get those thousands of people watching it that's that's the tricky thing because you're vying for everyone's attention and their attention span is extremely short extremely short and as we've talked about earlier with mentalism it's like you short attention spans is not good you know you you want something that's going to catch the right to be honest you know if you hang yourself from a burning rope above the Thames and, you know, you're on fire and you show a 10 second clip of that on YouTube, that's going to get more hits than possibly something that's a, a mentalism type routine. You know, that that's mm. that's the sort of reality we live in, I would say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's great advice. And uh, not to end on a downer, but the last question in is uh, what is the biggest problem now in mentalism and why <laughs> oh that is a big question how long we got we got another hour no <laughs> um <laughs> the, 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 the biggest problem in mentalism and i alluded it to it before is too many people doing it, it, it it's yeah. you know it uh, anthony owing god rest him used to say it's the new balloon modeling you know and it, and it is because everybody does it you know you're a kids magician and you're doing some mentalism in your kids show or or whatever and listen there's nothing wrong with that i'm not having a go at kids performers of course it's all fine but mentalism's been done we've we've done it everyone's done it so if you want to make a name for yourself if you want to have some level of fame you've got to get outside of that model, you know, and that's, I think, the biggest failing of, of mentalism at the moment, you know. Um, yeah. I suppose that, that's the honest answer, really. 
Yeah, I think it's I, a lot of uh, unoriginality. I think, as Steve was saying with the publicity stunts, like it's the same ones from 13 Steps. That, um, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, that's true too. Uh, I think the problem with mentalism is, you know, it, it, it lacks the visual element or it can potentially mm -hmm. lack the visual element. And we're actually very limited with plots because really in mentalism, there are only two plots. And that is you're either reading someone's mind or you're predicting something about the future. I mean, it all pretty much fits into those categories. Even if you're doing a lie detector test, well, how are you revealing the lie detector test? You know, it, it, it's some prediction of something that's happening. So, you know, it is, we are limited with plots. And mm -hmm. I think if you, if you see lots of mentalism on TV and you see people doing mentalism and you start doing mentalism, you're restricting yourself because there's this whole host of wonderful things out there. I mean, look, that we're in my study. This is that that is my shelf of magic books. Okay. So all along there, that's an entire wall full of magic. And if you want to go right the way around the room, it's like, and then there's videotapes <laughs> and there's more over in the corner, and there's a cupboard in there that you can't see into. Now, um, this section down here, there's a couple of shelves there that are essentially mentalism books. And that's it. Those are the mentalism books. There is a little bit of memory. There's some memory books in there as well. But everything else is card tricks or illusions or general magic or silks or dove magic or, you know, it's, it's there's just a whole host of other stuff that's out there. So if you go yeah. down the mentalism route, you're just restricting what you're doing. I mean, I love mentalism. I'm not going to change because I'm too old and too long in the tooth. And it's it's what I know most. But, um, you know, I just think, you know, there's just a wealth of fantastic stuff out there. And you know what? David Berglas came to the same conclusion because I, I when I turned professional, mm. I had a conversation with him about, you know, what he suggested and you know advice and things like that and his first line was don't be a mentalist <laughs> i just like oh, you know laughed and oh, you know and you know i see what he meant it, it was this argument because if you're a mentalist you are restricting what you're doing um and burglass never wanted to be a mentalist you know he, he he always called himself the you know the international man of mystery and and mm -hmm. if you watched burglass's um stage show yes there was mentalism but he did pickpocketing you know he he, he did other stuff in the show there would be a magic demonstration there might be something you know there, there might be a memory demonstration there might be stuff like that as well but you know he was doing other stuff he was doing magic and visual stuff um you know not many people know that you know during the 50s he had a, a flash act it was all to do with you know flash flashes and flash paper and lights and and stuff like that so you know, by, but by becoming a mentalist, you do restrict what that material that's open for you. And I think we live in a day and age where, uh, you know, we, we you need to see more. You need to see more than than what we're seeing at the moment in terms of, as you say, the same sort of headline predictions, the same sort of, you know, blindfold car drive or, or whatever. You know, I know they're classic plots and they're fine, but. We're actually seeing a lot of people do those. You know, you want to do something different. And there are other things that are out there, you know, like 
linking finger rings. You know, as I said earlier, you know, Ben Hart did that, blew my wife away, and she has seen a ton of magic and mentalists and mind reading. And just to finish on this note, um, Britain's Got Talent. All we're seeing on Britain's Got Talent is the same effect over yeah. and over and over again. It's all predictions. And yes, there's some very clever technology and some very clever methods that are going to that. But to my wife, it's the same trick. She yeah. literally turns off. You know, it, it's, it's the same setup. And it's the same reveal. Now, for us as mentors, of course, it's not the same setup and the same reveal. They all are different. But to my wife, they're the same. It's the same effect. And you know what? She's right. They are the same effect. So, you know, we need to try and do something a little more creative, a little bit. And, and you know what? Being a good visual magician would get you there now. And that's good why we would say... In the when the, all this pandemic's over, we're gonna have Mark Paul escape artist on fire in a straight check. <laughs> yeah, escape artist or a pickpocket or something. yeah, it's gonna be amazing. <laughs> in ten years' time, they're gonna come back to this and be like, "Where did all these pickpockets come from?" It's like this is the <laughs> part of the revolution. Pickpockets are like the new balloon animals. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> There's pickpockets everywhere. But we'd like to say thanks so much to you, Mark, and thanks to everyone for watching, sending in the questions. And we're back next week again with a new guest. And if you, do you have anything you want to plug, Mark, before we finish up? No, no. I mean, I'm on Mindvention uh, next week. Uh, so, you know, which is a, a great lineup. Um, you know, if you are into mentalism um, and you want to watch, I mean, okay, I'm not going to include myself as part of this, but it is the world's best. I mean, you know, you've got people like Banachek, you know, all the way through, you know, Kennedy, you've got Richard Webster, you, you've got just the best mentalist in the world on uh, at Mindvention. So um, it, it is a paid event, but it just looks like the best convention ever. So if you're around, it's the uh, 16th, 17th and 18th of January. Uh, just put in my invention and it'll tell you all about it definitely and we'll we'll put you up there with those people because your penguin, <laughs> your penguin live well, and penguin really uh <laughs> i think well, your penguin lecture was the second half of one of my shows so that <laughs> <laughs> so yeah thanks everyone and uh i'm at david peace magic everywhere at steve spade and make sure you go to deceivereality.com ireland's new magic shop so and we'll see you all next week thank you, thank you. So much.